0: Today we're talking about the Green Goddess. You might be wondering what the Green Goddess is. To some people, it might sound like a superhero film. To others, it might be that Keep Fit lady who appeared on breakfast TV in the 80s. But to most British people of a certain age, I'd say maybe 40 and over, the Green Goddesses were those big old lumbering green fire engines. I was lucky enough to interview Dave Smith from Dorset a few days ago, who served with the AFS, the Auxiliary Fire Service, and drove around in a Green Goddess, practicing to fight fire in nuclear war. I interviewed him via Zoom for my book, but I'm going to play you some of our interview here today, which focuses on what Dave and the Green Goddesses would have been required to do if nuclear war had come. And Dave, if you're listening, thanks again for speaking to me. Very funny man, full of stories and memories and a great sense of humour, reminding us all that preparation for nuclear war wasn't ever just about civil servants making plans in Whitehall, but about men and women across the country practising, rehearsing, learning and uh, maybe sometimes just <laughs> shaking their heads at how crazy it was. But as Dave said in the interview, when we were practicing and learning and receiving civil defense lectures, it might have been seen as crazy or ridiculous, or as I suggested, but he said, yes, but it was still knowledge. Even if it wouldn't have worked nuclear war, it was still practical knowledge. And that's never a waste of time. So let's look at the Green Goddess, and what her role would have been in nuclear war. (coughs) Let's go right back and start with the AFS, the Auxiliary Fire Service. We've been talking in recent episodes about the Civil Defence Corps. Well, if you didn't fancy joining the Corps, but still wanted to be active in civil defence work, then you could join the AFS, where you'd be trained in pumping water, fighting fire and basic rescue techniques, all as an unpaid volunteer, of course, just as with the Civil Defence Corps. And you'd have a commitment to train one evening per week at your local fire station and have occasional training weekends away throughout the year. You were there to supplement the fire service in the event of war, Although, as we'll see, the AFS were often called out to assist in real emergencies, assisting the regular fire brigade.
1: Throughout the ages, fire has been a major weapon of destruction. Against this weapon, the fire service is our front line of defence. In war, this service would have to be increased tenfold. Auxiliary firemen would be needed to man additional appliances. Women would be needed as drivers. It's no use waiting until the fire starts. Be prepared. Join now. For details of the Auxiliary Fire Service, ask at your local fire station.
0: So each fire station had their own AFS crew who would have their own Green Goddess engine at the station. As Dave said, often your training, one evening per week, would involve getting the Green Goddess out onto the back roads of Dorset, where you could get some practice in driving the big old thing. Dave says that they'd often drive out onto the Heathland, stop by the River Frome and draw water from the river, and in that way get practice in using the pumps. And it's the drawing and the hauling of water that is the important thing with the AFS. The main duty of the Auxiliary Fire Service in a nuclear war would be, as Dave put it, to shift water around the country. The Green Goddess could carry gallons of it and its main role was to act as a self-propelled pump. So they could move water around the country but they could also pump it from lakes or rivers on arrival at their destination. Dave described an example of this at one of his training sessions where they had about 50 green goddesses out in the countryside, all lined up in a row, all connected to one another. One of them, at the front of the line, would be drawing water from the river and then feeding it all the way up the line through all the green goddesses and at the end of the line, at the end of the 50 appliances, would be a fireman from the regular fire brigade and he'd be hosing the fire. So it was the duty of the AFS and their green goddesses to get the water to him and his men up at the front. Although, of course, the AFS crew could take part in firefighting and rescue if needed, but their main role was, as Dave said, to shift water. And of course, in a nuclear attack, if a town or city is alight, if it's local fire service has been decimated or its water supply fractured and ruined, then the green goddesses would be invaluable in bringing water to them, either on the backs of their appliances or by pumping it across distances from rivers and lakes into the burning cities. So as you can imagine, the green goddess was tough and hardy, It had to be, of course, if it was to get around in a battered post-nuclear Britain. So the appliances were quite simple. There were no fancy electronics in there, which meant that, one, it wouldn't be vulnerable to the EMP. And two, it'd be relatively easy to fix out on the road if something went wrong. So the idea was keep it simple this thing is going to be in operation under some very tough conditions. The last thing you want is your AFS guys stranded by the irradiated roadside, kicking at its wheels. The Green Goddess was also a 4x4, unlike regular fire engines, I understand, which helped it in going off-road or across atomic rubble. She was also quite high off the ground for the same reason. But being high off the ground and hauling all of that water meant that she was sometimes liable to sway if she went a bit too fast when taking a corner. So she had to keep herself to a sensible and respectable speed. So with all of that going on, with the fact that she was quite a simple machine, with the fact that she was hauling all of that water... She can't have been very smooth to ride in then. So I asked Dave about that. <laughs> what
1: was it like going out in the Green Goddess? Was it a big bumpy ride in, in that thing? Oh, yeah, but hang on, hang on. This is a lot of years ago. Cars <laughs> weren't so good then either. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, our cars weren't brilliant then either. So, yeah. you know, if you had the Green Goddess today coming off out of what we drive today, mm. It's like getting on a train with wooden sat seats yeah <laughs> you know but 50 years ago we didn't take any notice of it no being out in the green goddess was brilliant
0: i i don't drive dave so i can't really understand this but i've heard a few people say they could have been quite unsteady because they were quite high off the ground and with all the water in the back they could be yeah, quite unsteady you were
1: carrying over. six thousand six thousand gallon of water that's right quite a garden swimming pool <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes if you're motoring and you went round a tight bend you would know it was there the suspension mm-hmm. wasn't as you would have today but you drove it accordingly yeah you're putting six thousand gallons gallon of water that's heavy you're not going to be doing 80 mile an hour down the road it's just not going to be like that yeah. yes you had to drive what kind uh, of speed would you go at what was the top speed for it or the top safe speed I think most of our time was 45, maybe 50, maximum. Remember, no motorways then. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I think it could probably have wound up to about 60 miles an hour, I think. Um, Mm. But there was no way you were going to do it. Uh, And a lot of our training times were in the back roads anyway, so it wasn't a speed machine designed to be. In fact,
0: Dave told me that despite the Green Goddess's various drawbacks, his colleagues from the regular fire brigade still asked to pinch it quite often. He says whenever there was a fire out on the heathland in Dorset, they'd asked to take the Green Goddess out, as it was far better on rough, uneven ground than their own fire engines. So it was a case of, oh, come on, give us a shot of the Green Goddess! (laughs) So she'd be out in action whenever there was a fire on Dorset's heathland, but don't think she sat idle the rest of the time and was only taken out on the roads when the AFS lads were in for training. As we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the AFS were sometimes called to offer assistance at real emergencies, and Dave, having served in Dorset, said the biggest event for the AFS in the whole of the southwest of England by far was the Torrey Canyon disaster. Now, I have to admit that I had never heard of the Torrey Canyon until I spoke to Dave, and when I researched it, I was amazed at the story. Let me tell you what happened, for those who aren't familiar with it. The Torrey Canyon was an oil tanker, and she sailed from Kuwait to the Canary Islands, and then onwards to Wales. That was the plan anyway. She started her journey in February 1967 with a full cargo of oil. Unfortunately, on her journey, she struck a rock off the coast of Cornwall and soon began to break apart. Here is where the story gets quite incredible. The oil was, of course, spilling out into the sea, so the British government had the bright idea of setting fire to the oil spill, hoping to both sink the wreckage and burn off the excess oil in the sea. So they sent the RAF out to bomb the shipwreck, to bomb the oil. Having set it alight, they then set out more planes to drop kerosene to fuel the fire. But, you guessed it, the seawater... Kept putting the fire out. So they continued the next day sending more and more planes out to drop more bombs on the wreck. And this time they used napalm. According to Wikipedia, in total they dropped 161 bombs and used 1,500 tons of napalm and 44,500 litres of kerosene. And after all of that, the Tory Canyon, at last, sank under the waves. But the spill has produced the worst environmental disaster to that date. Let's do one of my favourite things now and look in local newspaper archives to find an eyewitness report of the relentless bombing of the Tory Canyon. We have one here from the Reading Evening Post. Which says, I flew at 1,000 feet over the battered and burned remains of the Torrey Canyon yesterday. Three sections of the giant tanker, straddled on the Seven Stones rocks between Land's End and the Sillies, were clearly visible. The funnel rose tall and lifeless above the waves. The aft section, charred and rust-coloured, was listing heavily to port. It goes on to say, visibility was perfect. The giant VC-10 belonging to RAF Transport Command, circled the lifeless wreck twice, banked sharply to starboard, and then climbed towards the sun. It was one forty pm Five minutes later, and 9,000 feet higher, I watched as the Navy started another afternoon of bombing. Two sea vixens came into view from off the Cornish coastline. The sun danced on their wings as they sped across a stretch of Oil polluted sea, their shadows danced upon the low lying cloud clusters. Our plane was over the Prime Minister's holiday aisle as the first sea vixen launched her first onslaught against the stricken vessel. The fighter plane screamed down out of the blue sky in a sharp dive, down, down, until at one thousand feet she banked suddenly and unloaded her explosives. The peaceful sea erupted into violence. A column of spray climbed upwards. There had been a strike, but in the wrong section. Two more dives, two more strikes, and then there were four sea vixens. They went in relentlessly, one after the other, skimming the waves and unloading their bombs. The sea around the Torrey Canyon was frothing and angry. But that tiny section in the centre of the wreckage, which the sea vixens were after, remained elusive. It was that section that housed a 30-foot oil tank. The VC-10 captain said he would make one more orbit before heading for home. A sea vixen went into another dive. It must have been the 12th. In the excitement of this spectacular cat-and-mouse game, I had lost count this time she scored a direct hit. A column of black, filthy smoke and a great ball of red and yellow fire rose steeply into the air. A great gushing cloud of destruction. The Navy pilot acknowledged his achievement with a victory roll. My R.E.F. crew gave a cheer and we headed for home. Of course, the firemen and the AFS weren't there to put out a fire. On the contrary, a fire was being started, not extinguished, out at sea. Instead, their role was on the beaches, uh, trying to clear the shore of all that filthy oil. But Dave was denied the adventure of taking part. He says he and his crew were on standby, waiting to be called to the beaches And he saw his nearby teams of Weymouth, Bridport and Portland called out. And then, when it was his turn, the Wareham AFS guys, they were all stood down. And he said that the wives and mothers of the AFS men were relieved. As all the others had come home absolutely black and filthy with oil. And all the uniforms eventually had to be thrown away. There was no point in trying to clean them. Now, talking of the uniform, I decided to ask Dave an important question. We all know the cliché of the handsome fireman. So I wondered, did the same hold true for auxiliary firemen? If he went into his local pub and said, Hey ladies, I can be trusted to haul water in the event of nuclear attack, would that impress the girls? Well, (laughs) Dave just laughed (laughs) and he said that the AFS uniform or status gave you no special power, especially not in Dorset, where there were so many army camps. So even if you had tried to boast in the local pub, the ladies could easily have nodded to, say, the guy at the fruit machine and said, yeah, so what? He commands a tank. So no, the uniform and the title of AFS gave you no special glamour or mystique. But as Dave said, when I had talked about whether he joined the AFS for a bit of glamour, a bit of adventure, a bit of excitement, or did he ever feel it was a bit pointless? We all know about nuclear firestorms. We've discussed firestorms in previous episodes. How on earth can a fireman tackle such a blaze? So did he ever feel it was pointless? But Dave said that wasn't the point of the AFS or of civil defence work. As he saw, whether it was useful or not in the event of nuclear war, it was knowledge, and knowledge itself is never a waste. By joining the AFS, you were developing and learning practical skills, which is never a waste of time. And as we saw with things like the Torrey Canyon... You could turn those skills to other uses. You weren't just sitting around twiddling your thumbs waiting for a nuclear war. You could lend a hand in all manner of incidents. And so that can never be called a waste of time. Apart from disasters like the Torrey Canyon, the Green Goddesses were also called out to floods and in the drought of 1976, the year of that famous heat wave. But they were probably most visible on a national level, at least in my memory, during the fire brigade strikes. I can remember them being back out on the roads during the strike of 2002. And of course, they were also called out in the previous strike before that, in the 1970s. Of course, when the firemen were on strike, the army was called in. And they were on hand to respond to any emergencies and would attend by driving the old green goddesses to the scene as required. Fire Brigade strikes are thankfully rare, so it was always big news when it happened, and as I remember from 2002, the news cameras loved being on hand to capture some footage of the green goddesses rumbling along the road to an emergency. I suppose getting that moment on film is emotive for two reasons – One is the pure old nostalgia of seeing the Green Goddess in action. And the other is perhaps a fear factor. Like saying, look, that's what we're relying on in emergencies. Those slow old things. Looking through YouTube, we see a clip from Newsnight where Jeremy Vine called the Green Goddesses miserably inadequate. And here's another BBC News clip from The Strike.
1: Well, they'll obviously do, as he said, the best they can with what they've got, but you you have to say, Dave, some of those machines, those green goddesses, they're pretty elderly, aren't they? Yes, some of them are 50 years old, and we've only got just over 90 covering the entire northwest. They can do just 30 miles an hour compared to 70-plus of a modern fire engine. They have very basic equipment. The ladders can reach barely above a second-floor window, and they don't carry breathing apparatus. That apparatus is carried aboard special vehicles called BARTs, and they're manned by professional Navy firefighters.
0: So there's plenty of footage on YouTube of the firemen strikes or just general uh, footage of green goddesses if you want to search for that. Um, What is often noticeable in these clips is that on an emergency call we see police cars go zooming out of the barracks, flying to the destination and acting as an escort and then the green goddess comes rumbling out, often quite far behind. Now if you watch... These clips, you'll see that the green goddesses, the clips from this fireman strikes, you'll see that the green goddesses have an RAF or Royal Navy logo on the side. And that's because by this point, the AFS no longer existed. Just like the Civil Defence Corps, the AFS was disbanded in 1968. We'll, of course, look at that in future podcast episodes. Now, when it was disbanded, of course, the government put a lot of the Green Goddesses into storage. They were mothballed for this very reason, in case a disaster uh, uh, pops up, in case we have a fireman strike. So a lot of them were kept for that purpose. They were maintained, of course, but very obviously they were still ageing and they were still becoming very outdated compared to what modern fire engines with all their gear And all their changes across the years kept acquiring. So the AFS was gone, their orange logo uh, stripped off the side of the engine and a Royal Navy or RAF1 put on instead in case they were called out in strikes. We saw from the news clip of the 2002 fire strike that the Green Goddesses were being questioned. Are they really up to the job? Well, just a few years later, in 2005, The government decided to just get rid of them. The fire service minister at the time, Nick Rainsford, said they had made the decision to dispose of the fleet. And so the old engines were sold off. Some of them went to collectors and enthusiasts and museums. Others went to developing countries in Africa. And the BBC reports that 80 went to the former Soviet Republic of Azerbaijan who lost a lot of their own fire engines after Chernobyl. I hope you've enjoyed our look at The Green Goddess. I spoke to Dave, our former auxiliary fireman, for far longer, but I'm saving most of the material for my book. I'm sure you'll all be galloping out to buy it when it's published next year. So thank you again to Dave Smith for speaking to me, and thank you to all my patrons who donate money each month to the podcast and to help fund my nuclear research. I got lots of those gorgeous email notifications this week telling me I had new people signing up so you must have all really loved last week's episode on the Strath Report so thank you to my new patrons Henry T. Drummond, Andreas Rowland, William Whitehead Tamsin Carter and Neil Collinson and if you want to donate some money to the podcast please look at my Patreon page you'll find it at patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo easy to sign up and easy to cancel if you need to let me also give a shout out to the following patrons Richard Alum, Run Techno Union Rep, Luke Guttridge, Martin Harder, Richard Hewitt, Liz, Debbie, Lisa Hughes, Jacqueline Brick, Charlie Connolly, Peter James Nicholson, Declan Crawwell, Dave Cardena, Antoine Stumpf, Sam Marco, Viv Huddy, Bill Capehart, Jeffrey Reid, Charlie Brown, Andrew Apostolis, Gier Kingma, Lane Raper, Amanda Nellist, Rob Johnson, and Oliver Wiles. Remember you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell on Facebook under Nuclear Britain or you can visit my website juliemcdowell.com which has links to all my published work and I think I've not been on the site for a while but I think all my Chernobyl photographs are there. Um, I went to Chernobyl before it was cool to go to Chernobyl and I was lucky enough to be there on a day when it was empty absolutely empty i mean literally the only visitors there that day were me and uh, my husband so you can see pictures of a deserted chernobyl with a lovely light frosty covering of snow so that's on my website juliemeatdill.com thank you again for listening and thank you for supporting my podcast